That's what they tell me. I, it doesn't seem that long, but uh, you know, at my age, nothing seems that long anymore. And it's like uh, the end of the toilet paper roll. It's closer to the end, faster it goes. You know. Is that a motivating factor in producing more stuff? I think, in a way, yeah. You know, um, I'm hoping to do more records in the next couple of years. Although I always say that, and whether I really get around to getting them finished is always another argument. But we've always been a pretty active touring band, live band. We've you know playing live gigs throughout the year has been a big part of our yearly things and it still gets in the way just as it always did when we were even younger you know I mean, the doobies we were always finishing the next record in destinations far flung from la you know just to get it done you know because we were always on the road in fact we we did some of minute by minute in muscle shoals the old fame studios years ago just to get the, the record done i still run into that problem with touring make a point that when i when i am home to, to make that a priority that must have helped your work ethic then, if you were able to squeeze it in between Seemingly shows. not so much, no. but, <laughs> you know, it should have, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's always that tricky part, you know, because life, you know, is in yeah. session all the time, and now the kids are grown and stuff, so it's a lot easier for me to get to get to my business and stuff than it used to be when they were little, you know. Do you have a notebook? Do you carry around notes for My wife days? buys them for me, like, every six months, and I, I lose them within a day or two. I just, I've always had trouble doing that because I've always, you know, unfortunately, I've always had people who would remind me what I have to do next, the record company or the uh, management or whoever. When you don't really have to do that stuff like balance your own checkbook, you'd be amazed yeah. at how quickly you forget how to do it. So somebody like, hey, hey, Michael, it's been 17 years. It's probably time to well, that, put another yeah, record yeah. out. You know, unfortunately, in those in those areas, they can, it can get away from everyone. You know, and not just me. You know, but I, I'm I'm like I've already started another project that I'm hoping. But then, you know, I cut one thing, and my friend who I'm doing it with is already going. You know, are we ever going to go back in the studio yeah. again and do another track? And so I'm just kind of finding myself succumbing to sloth and procrastination again. You know, now that it's out there in the world, and it seems like people have been largely reacting pretty positively to it, that must be a, a motivating factor to get out there. It most definitely is. You know, and and it was a kind of record. That was more in keeping with records I have done in the past, although maybe different material-wise, but still uh, with a full band and tracking, live tracking dates and stuff like that, and or building tracks from demos, you know, the way we used to do. There are a couple other kinds of projects I'd like to do where I maybe just uh, real bare bones, maybe just bass and piano and one or two significant cameos of, of other instruments like more guitar. sort of live in studio yeah but really uh, very very little sonic information or harmonic information other than voice bass maybe a little bit of drums percussion even you know but just to try to keep a do a record that's really uh in some cases maybe just a trio so as to experiment with that kind of tracking production, you know, where there's very little to mix in the end. And obviously, the expression of doing a record of originals is different than doing covers, you've, mm-hmm. of which you've done many. It's a little rawer. You're putting yourself out there. Is it more difficult the further away you get from the last project? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I was lucky in a way that I had made, been. I'm always making demos of song ideas. So what this record is consists of largely enough is demos I had made while I was doing the Motown projects. You know, know, I'd get an idea for a song and I didn't want to forget it. So I would jump in my studio in the wee hours and the guy that I was co-oping with on that space, he was a drummer engineer and we had combined a lot of our old gear. We're both kind of analog gear fanatics and kind of a more of a warehouse than a studio but we set up enough of a system that we could record you know and it's a big room so we can get a pretty good sound in there you know he would work in there a lot uh, he's 
producer and a great drummer. He had all these files that we had done of these demos. And when he moved into a different space, he had all that stuff with him. And he used some of those demos we made to tune his new room to his drums, you know. So uh, he set up his drums out in the room to try to find the right spot and the right miking situation. And so he used those demos just to have something to play to, you know. So by the time I came back and I went out to see his new studio, uh, he said, man, I, I got to tell you, I've been using those files that we had of your demos, you know, to just kind of set up my drums and stuff. And he goes, uh, I think some of that stuff, is, you, I think you got to start for of a new record here, you know. So we listened to it and just the drums that he had replaced, you know, in the new room with better recording sounds and everything because the stuff we did as demos was just quickie but so he really took the time to find the right drum sound and stuff all of a sudden the stuff already sounded better to me you know and i thought well maybe we can work with these tracks because we liked the vocals we liked the vocals were kind of matter of fact yeah i hate singing in the studio especially when i know i'm singing a master track typically i'll listen to the demo and wish i could have sang it like i did on the demo which when i really wasn't thinking too much about it being the last vocal i'll ever do on this it's kind of like golf if you really are in a tournament you start swinging way too hard if you're not careful and you start playing a different game than you do when you're relaxed i didn't want to lose those vocals so we some of those tracks not all of them but some of we just rebuilt the tracks around that that original vocal you You get caught up in a trap if you become too much of a perfectionist in the studio especially now with pro tools and all of these things at your disposal and in the studio i I found that the more technology we get the more different ways we can confuse the hell out of ourselves you know and 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 bogged down with that pursuit of perfection you know it's like editing even tuning if you do that on something what is the right perfect pitch no one really knows you know i mean it's uh you need someone nudging you out the door a little bit yeah you do i think we started off with that pursuit thinking that we were going the right direction with that and not changing the original vocals because they just felt good you know the phrasing felt right so we thought well if we play to that vocal we'll always keep the track in that groove in some cases we did some cases we didn't do so well it was something to shoot at that kept the feel of that track and you know all the way going back to the 60s when i started recording it seems like you were always chasing the demo always trying to get that certain magic that the demo had even though it was a terrible recording there was something about the performance a lot of times the problem with that is is uh, you can't you just have to let it go and let it be what it is now i wish many cases like when we play some of the songs we've been playing for years I wish I had the chance to sing them for years before we had ever cut the tracks because you, know, you change everything. You change the melody, you change the cadence, you change the tempo to something typically better, I think, you know, over the years. And then you always wish, oh, shoot, I wish I had sung this melody on the record. One of the primary differences of starting with the foundation of a song, like a, a Marvin Gaye song or a Stevie Wonder song, is you know that that's a fantastic piece of art, right? You oh, know yeah, you yeah. have that core. It's an entirely different experience when you're just building something from scratch and putting it out into the world. Yeah, I mean, it is. And it's a, a kind of a, like you say, it's kind of fun in that because you already know you're starting, you, nobody's going to say, Oh, I don't know if it's a single, <laughs> because it was a gigantic hit already. Because <laughs> it's one of the best songs ever. Yeah, written. yeah, yeah. One of the, the longest running radio tunes ever. Yeah. So, you know, you, you don't have that worry that you do with original stuff. But also, all you have to worry about is not lousing it up too much, you know, and hopefully bringing something to it that's a little different, but gives it a, a different, shines a different light on the song. But you already know the song is great, so you don't have that worry, you know. Was there a fear early on when you did start doing the Motown covers? And obviously, the first time people listen to it, they're going to be comparing it to one of the great performances of all time no yeah i had a twofold worry there because when they asked me to do it i i I remember in my head and my my voice in my head saying 
Just say yes. Don't get into a big discussion about it. So this was somebody else's suggestion? Yeah, it was Universal UK, guys from the UK. They owned all the masters. So their original idea was for me to sing on the original masters, which I was never going to do. To sing over the Funk Brothers tracks? Yeah, and and, uh, as much as I would have enjoyed doing that in my spare time in private, uh, (laughs) I I would never release a record. You know, I already knew that was not going to happen, but I didn't want to. I just said, look, uh, we can explore this. And at the same time, in my head, I was going, why are they asking me of all people? Because there's a million young new artists who are much more contemporary. It should shouldn't it be a young black artist? What made me say yes more than anything else was I thought to myself, you know, I have sung these songs for fifty years yeah. in every nightclub I ever played, and I learned a certain affinity with the songs that is my own. But it's usually me trying to emulate the old vocal. So I thought, well, I at least have that to bring to it. I've learned to sing these songs in the trenches, in nightclubs growing up. Maybe that's worth something. It just seemed like such a great opportunity. I, I As much as I had doubts about it, I, I didn't want to say no. And then in the course of discussing how we were going to go about it, I said, look, I don't think we should touch the original masters at all. Those are relegated to history. They should always be by those artists. Let's green screen me into yeah. Citizen Kane. No, right, exactly. And, you know, there had been so many sampling things and done with hip-hop, and I don't want to do a hip-hop Motown record. People aren't going to cross the street to hear me do, yeah. you know, contemporary hip-hop stuff. I don't want to go in with, like, the hottest new hip-hop producer and do this record. After the Warren G record came out, was there interest? There's a lot of great young producers yeah. out there that do, they're in that genre, who I love. You know, I love what they do. But I didn't want to do that to Motown. I said, you know, the idea that I have in my head is, and it was all about compromise at that point, I'd like to do all the very cool, obscure Motown tracks, the B-sides that people remember, but they haven't heard in a million years. You get that feeling when you hear the song, you go, oh my gosh, like Since I Lost My Baby. Yeah. Or songs that weren't, they were big hits, but maybe not the Heard it through the grapevine. Reach out, I'll be there. Those songs that people will hear and go, "Oh, wow, I love that song." I haven't heard it forever. The record company didn't like that idea. They wanted me to do grapevine, so I compromised for every grapevine we did. Up, loving you is sweeter. We got to rearrange with something like one of the Supremes tracks. Do you feel that you've got maybe a little more liberty if it's not as huge of a hit? Yeah, you do. And also, we did some of the even really big hits. We just kind of went song by song. Sometimes it just seemed really appropriate to kind of recreate in some way the original record like when we did for once in my life you're never going to do a better version than stevie's version of that song so we just kind of did our best to recreate that that feeling simon climby was the big real winning ingredient in the whole thing he had produced the pilgrim album with eric clapton and i just love that record i thought that's such a classically soulful and yet it had that that kind of ethereal British sheen or to it that it's kind of like when the Beatles first came out and they did you really got a hold on me I think there was just something different about the way they did them as opposed to the American acts who already had big hits with them there was some kind of English twist to it you know that we all responded to you know growing up so I thought you know if we're going to do the Motown stuff it would be fun to do it with this producer who's going to bring that kind of ethereal quality to these very recognizable songs Hopefully we'll come up with some cool arrangements. And his uh, his team of guys came up with some great tracks. I participated in some of the pre-production on the first two. But for the most part, those guys did the tracks. I just had to worry about singing them in the keys of the original record for the most part because we kind of made up a pack that we wouldn't lower the keys if we didn't have to. Some of them we absolutely had to. Yeah. But, but, but for the most part, we did them all in the original keys just to kind of keep the spirit of that record. Even after you had been recording for a number of decades and had a number of big hits at the time, there was still a sense of self-doubt that maybe you 
couldn't really replicate it or maybe you know you didn't necessarily deserve to be up there with a Stevie or a Marvin Gaye? I wanted to make sure that I created an environment for myself with a producer and musicians and, and the approach to the songs that would allow me to be sincere. That I wouldn't find myself in a strange situation trying to be something I'm not to facilitate some kind of a concept for the record that I didn't like. You don't want to be the, yeah. the Pat Boone to <laughs> Yeah, no, song. right. I didn't want to, I didn't, well, and and I didn't want to be trying to be something I wasn't yeah. just to, to do this gig. I wanted to make sure it was uh, something I felt sincere in, when I got up to the microphone to sing the songs because I love the songs and, and uh, I think Simon really brought that to the whole project. He really has uh, excellent taste in that kind of music and a reverence for it that you know he wouldn't he wouldn't try to make something contemporary just to make it contemporary he would try to find what is the essence of this song and this original record that we don't want to lose there's an element of that on the new record from the standpoint of you are experiencing this career resurgence even before the record came out you did the thundercat track you're getting notice from a younger generation it could have been here's hip new michael mcdonald record on the new one but instead you decided to go with what you knew yeah i i felt you know whatever whatever i have to bring to this project it can only be what i do best and then the minute i step outside of that comfort zone i'm more than likely not going to be of much use to this thing and I, I didn't want it, that situation to get created by me or for me. You know, like I say, as soon as I knew Simon was on board, I knew we were probably in pretty good shape because I knew what he was capable of as a producer, and I knew that he understood what a track kind of had to have to get a, put a vocal over it. Because so, on so many, you know, uh, newer contemporary things, it's not like, like uh, the vocals, they're not all that important. You know what I mean? They're just yeah. part of the... It's ambiance almost. Yeah, the yeah. ambiance of the, the wall of ambiance. And we come from a different era and a different school i was only going to be able to sound you know like anybody to a certain degree and and, you know because the era i grew up if you sounded like somebody else your career was over you know (laughs) and nowadays it's like a lot lot of the uh, vocals kind of emulate each other it seems like when you're approached to do something like the thundercat project are you able to go with the flow steve bruner we were listening to like things song ideas that he had started there was any number of them that really spoke to me and that one particularly kind of felt like something we could contribute to that was up our alley, more or less. There's a real power in his music that uh, I, I really love, and especially live. You know, I got to play with him live a couple times. And it's basically a power trio, his band. He's one of those people, you know, the first time you see him, it's like an alien. It's like this entirely oh, yeah, yeah, unknown yeah. thing. And then the deeper you get into it, the clearer it becomes. It, it's funny because it is so different and so fresh in so many ways. And yet it's so steeped in tradition. It very much has that funk fusion thing that's kind of out of this world and yet has a deep root in what you know his systemically american music jazz r&b funk soul it's just interesting to see somebody take it in that direction in the way he does and and assemble chord progressions and songs the yacht rock stuff even though it started off as parody i think there's an earnest appreciation there for the music i mean is that a motivating factor in getting out there and trying something new yeah the guys in that genre that new genre of r&b like uh, thundercat yeah um, solange is a fan solange all those artists sort of hip-hoppy yeah jazz uh, they all have this kind of daring that I like mm. you know they take you know you can tell that they, they, they they're looking backward and forward at the same time you know I like that about an artist where there seems to be a very progressive thing about something that's also very familiar there's a there's an old soul to it but it's a, a whole new approach that's what I, I like about those uh 
those artists. I have to imagine that after joining the Doobies, this was an established band. You were coming on, sort of doing your own thing within the broader context of the band. Any sort of self-doubt that you might have had at the time was probably amplified by this hit band that you were joining. That was a, the dream gig of a lifetime, yeah. you know. I mean, I, I was just plucked out of obscurity, you know. Uh, you weren't that obscure. <laughs> I mean, I was at best a side man. Yeah. The way that all came about, uh, and the fact that I want on to stay with the band for a few years and actually become a member of the band was a lot of twists and turns that were not foreseen by me. So I was just signing on for one yeah. tour, you know, to kind of allow them to help them finish some dates until Tommy Johnson came back. And as it turns out, Tom didn't come back right away, and he actually went on to do a solo record during that period of time. Uh, Everything You Heard Is True is the title of it, but it had, there were some great tunes on that record, uh, some all-time great Tommy Johnson songs. And I think it's something he needed to do because it was a much more of an R&B record, I think, than... Even the stuff with the doobies, in the context of the band, a lot of his stuff was very guitar-driven rock, very soulful, always on that border of R&B and, and rock. But I think his first solo record was kind of, a, he, he was kind of set free to do something that was straight down the throat, kind of rhythm and blues. But what that did was that opened the door for me to kind of stick around with the band. And, and we worked together with the band, Tommy and I, and he came back and toured with us and played with us on a couple records. But... You know, there was something about the freedom, I think, of what he was experiencing at that point in his life. With Doobies, we always had a ridiculous touring schedule. Yeah. It was like, get him back on the road. Musically, though, when, when you first joined up, did you feel like you were out of your comfort zone? Uh, no, because I was just learning their songs, you know. And so I, I didn't really think about it one way or the other, other than to make sure I knew the parts. And I, they gave me a bunch of leads to sing, and which I thought was great. You know, I didn't normally get a chance to sing lead with most bands I worked for that were actually paying me money. Uh, singing was something I did in my little bar gigs with buddies of mine. You know, we all took a song or two. You know, it was a lot of profile to have as a sideman to be able to sing a couple of their yeah. big hits and stuff. Uh, on, you know, at least each night like that. And that worked its way into being more of a member of the band. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we had the, an album to do. The producer had heard a demo of mine that I had cut with Tyran Porter of a song I wrote. Uh, which I had no intention of playing for him or anybody, really. I just, just Ty and I were just having fun one night. I had dinner at his house, and he was showing me his new studio that he put together. And, and it was just like an eight-track studio, you know, so we made this demo, you know. The producer suggested we cut it as a band. Did you not see yourself as being a, a songwriter, as performing your own stuff prior to that? I did. I, I came to California to be a song, yeah. singer-songwriter, you know. A lot of my stuff was pretty terrible, you know, but... Um, I didn't know that then. I thought I wanted to be like B.J. Thomas. I loved Burt Bacharach yeah. songs. You know, I mean, I to be a crooner would have been my greatest dream. You know, to you know, it's never too late, Michael. Right? Yeah, yeah. I've kind of worn it out a little bit too much for that now, but uh, I, I did have eyes to be a solo artist when I came to California. I had a record deal. That's what got me out there, and it was a situation that really gave me a great experience because I didn't really do well as a, as a new artist in a stable of artists of this producer who signed me, uh, Rick Gerard. He was nice enough to hire me on all his recording dates, so I was playing on everybody that he produced, uh, their sessions, you know, uh, doing overdubs or playing on the, the tracking dates. And it was a, th- a job I did not deserve. I didn't you know, have any business being on the floor with the wrecking crew. But I, there I was, you know, and he used me to write little arrangements for him to kind of... S- formulate the tracks and so that kind of facilitated me being there on the date and I'd wind up playing keyboard on these tracks with 
Hal Blaine and Carol Kay and yeah, yeah, yeah you know uh, Jerry Chef and uh, James Burton and all these top-notch guys that probably did more for me than mm. anything else that happened to me during that period that of was time. sort of like boot camp for you yeah it really you was. had you have to get better when you're surrounded by greatness oh yeah yeah and uh, those guys were very nice to me and but they also gave me a real good guidance it's like you don't want to be the first one to get to the bridge yeah you know? <laughs> so I, I learned to really play in a rhythm section with a lot more ability. Do you learn about songwriting by playing with studio musicians? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I, I think I always learned. I, that's why I always did a lot of background singing dates too, because I, I always loved that that idea of being in on somebody's project before it was released as a record. You know, I always loved hearing what you know whoever's uh, session we were singing on at the time, whether it was Jimmy Webb or michael jackson or whoever to hear the stuff that they were working on in the moment you know we were usually the last overdubs that, that were getting done so you could pretty much hear the tracks uh they had already been cut and most of the overdubs had been done the backgrounds and it was a nice kind of a inside view of what was going on with this artist and you learn a lot from that you know and you hear the tracks in a different way when you hear them before they're mixed you know do you feel like you could have been happy i mean had that been what you continue to do for your career if you were a studio musician, a backing musician? Yeah, I think I would have been. I had a greater dream to become a studio musician than I did to become a, a recording artist because I did stop kind of writing for a while. I didn't start writing again till like till all of a sudden the opportunity with the Doobies presented itself. Then all of a sudden I started finishing songs that had been laying around for years. So you've had this problem for a long time. Of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and I take a long time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the disappointment for me was to not ever really be, to know that I wasn't, ever going to be good enough to be a, an A-list guy, you know. I was In terms of a studio? Studio first call kind of guy, you know. I was never one of those guys, never was going to be one of those guys. It's kind of like being an athlete that only had so much talent. You're not going to make it to the pro. So in, in terms of studio musicianship, you know, that was my dilemma, you know, or my... Uh, my fate but i enjoyed it so much and my dream in my back of my head was to be one of those guys you know and uh, you had to settle for being a famous singer well you know i i, I realized that probably more than likely i'm going to be that guy that goes on the road forever yeah and, and and gets paid to be part of a band on the road you know uh you you figure out where you fit in because you are you're looking to make a living at this you know and, and i enjoyed traveling when i was young you know i still enjoy it you know when you get to this point when you're in la working with the best studio musicians and then you're working with the doobies you've got kenny Loggins over here you've got some of the best singers songwriters of the era how much are you actually driven by by competition always yeah always i was always driven by competition i always felt like competition was a good thing because it made me realize what there was to be accomplished you know Otherwise, you wouldn't know. You know, you would think because I'm a creature of habit. I mean, I'd be happy to just know what I know and never worry about learning anymore. I need competition to kind of keep uh, progressing, and I don't see it as competition in a bad way or that I have to win anything. I just have to understand that I got a long way to go before I'm as good as that guy, and that keeps me honest with myself. Hopefully, which I also have a problem with, <laughs> but don't we all? But. uh I like it. I like being around. I've always felt that uh, the only way I'm going to really progress, and in, in progression, I find enjoyment you know, with music. Really, it's a big component in, in still enjoying what I do. But I've always found that I always have to surround myself with players who are better than I am, you know, because uh, then the whole experience means something different you know, than it would if I was just kind of playing with guys who were kind of at my speed. And there's something about that. It, it doesn't work as well for anybody really it's kind of important to 
always kind of put yourself into a situation that is out of your comfort zone. I assume that played a role in the new album. I mean, in a lot of ways, it is a really personal album, and you are dealing with some very difficult personal issues, again, after 17 years of not having put out an album of originals. Was it difficult to get out there and be that honest with yourself in front of a giant audience? Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think I was saying anything too incredibly revealing or anything, but I, I always kind of felt, and as a songwriter, I've always kind of sought to say things that I thought you could relate to. There's issues of like substance abuse on here. Sure, I mean, yeah. that's that's some pretty personal stuff. Yeah, universal, oh, sure. but very personal. Yeah, no, right, absolutely. And and I can only talk about that stuff from my own viewpoint. I yeah. can't offer anyone any advice where that's concerned because I spend a lot more time failing at that than succeeding. I wouldn't want to give anyone advice. Yeah. You know, I, I just can only talk about my own experience. And that was one of, uh, you know, finding that uh, acceptance and surrender were the two most important things I could find that gave me any ability to succeed surrender to the truth, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, I was to honest with yourself yeah an addict you know because up until that point you know I, I was constantly in that head frame of and getting more and more delusional with it I got this I'm better than this you know I'm not I'm not one of those guys yeah. that, that can't deal with it you've been around long enough that you've seen a lot of people sure, succumb sure. I, see, I see guys all the time every day yeah. deal with it the same way I did and bottom line is you know we all had that the huge struggle was trying to prove that we we, we got this yeah. you know we, I got control of it. I, I can you know I'm not so pathetically unable to control myself that I can't get a handle on this and the fact is that it was just the truth of the matter was that you can't we met your son on the way up here and I know he's a songwriter performer himself and having been in the industry for as long as you have really been put through the ringer over the years. Did you try to dissuade him from going into the field at all? No, not if I thought he had any chance of enjoying doing it as much as I have. Because, you know, even after all these years, I find I'm on the road and I, I'd be in the back of the bus bouncing around. I'm 66 years old. Yeah. What in the fuck am I doing? Laying back here, bouncing around, grabbing the wall every time that he hits the, the uh, rumble strip. I don't know what your financial situation is, but I assume that you don't have to necessarily be touring all the time. Oh, well, as long as my wife has a credit card, I'll be on the road. Trust me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think about it sometimes like, you know, isn't, shouldn't this be something that a uh, part of my past? I should be on a beach somewhere. Or just have grown up, you yeah. know. I feel like Peter Pan sometimes, you know. But I, but I realize, you know, the bottom line, that's just part of how we try to perceive ourselves at any given moment when the fact is what we really are is probably not that evident to us. And what I really am is a guy who just enjoys doing what I do. And if people are coming out to see you, you must be doing something right. Yeah, and I, and I enjoy playing live with a band any day of the week. But I'll find myself questioning it. Because I think I'm supposed to question it when and when it's, it's good all to sudden, check yourself every exactly every so often. yeah yeah and and then but in the end I just realized I just need to accept the fact that this is what I enjoy doing and it doesn't have to be earth shattering or it doesn't have to be the biggest show in town. You're from Ferguson originally. There is a song on the new record that I think does kind of play to some of those issues. Seeing what's been going on politically in in the world, did that motivate you to sort of sit down and write a song addressing some of the issues? Ferguson is a prime example, uh, like so many of these things, of how little we communicate with each other, how we polarize before we ever give a subject any thought whatsoever. It's so much easier to do now with social media. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And, and misinformation yeah. and all that bullshit. Ferguson, for instance, is a much nicer town than it was when I grew up in it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a, a great 
little town, uh, you know, in its own way, but it was post-war economy. Small towns were dying on the vine. You know, the buses stopped running. It got to where there was no business downtown. Somebody was building a mall 10, 15 miles away that you had to drive to where all the stores were. Ferguson back then was probably 99.9% white people. Mm. But today, it's a a much more diverse town. And downtown Ferguson is like microbreweries and wine. Buddies that I grew up with are actually playing in downtown Ferguson. We never dreamed of playing. We we played at one club in Ferguson, the Castaway, which was out by the airport. And it was probably the only nightclub that ever existed in Ferguson. It was a very economically unfulfilled place. If you listen to the news and or if you listen to the rhetoric around the whole subject of Ferguson, you'd think it was a hellhole, but it's not. My house looks a hell of a lot better than it did when we lived there, and the town really has not changed that much to the eye. You know, if we really just listened to what each other is actually saying and not assumed that each other means something else, we'd do a lot better. You know, when people say black lives matter, no one is saying white lives don't matter. And to watch the way we don't see the elephant sitting in the living room and we discuss around it things and make arguments out of things that aren't even really the argument. Do I really give a shit what Amorosa thinks of Donald Trump? What I really care about is why did Donald Trump hire Amorosa to be one of the senior cabinet members in his administration in the first place? Isn't that really more telling than anything else? I mean, nothing against a woman, but she has no business being you know, anyone's yeah. aid or advisor to any president. No less than Donald Trump necessarily has uh, to, be to be president. Absolutely. Well, my point, exactly. Yeah. You know, here's a guy that during a presidential debate wasted precious minutes of a national presidential debate to air his resentment for Rosie O'Donnell. Really? You know, am I the only one noticing this? Since you still have a platform, you felt that it was important to discuss that on record. Well, I, I don't know that I discussed that particularly on record. No, but, 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 but the, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like uh, that it's important that we understand the conversation we're actually having and that if we're going to have the conversation, we actually really need to listen yeah. to each other, not just talk over each other with rhetoric that is only very one-sided. Our rhetoric at this point is getting so one-sided that we're actually, in America, being a racist has become like a, a, a valid argument again. Listen, there's no fucking valid argument there. It's wrong, period. You know, I saw a guy wearing a hat the other day go, make racism wrong again. <laughs> I thought that just says it all, you know. I mean, that's where we're at. We thought we won that fight. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we thought we, we, we came to an understanding about this, you know. But uh, here we are again. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll snap out of this, whatever this din is. Because b- before we become the, the next biggest satellite of the new Soviet Union, and then, uh, you know, people in America, for all their patriotism, have to start getting used to the standard of living that most working class Russians and North Koreans and I think it's time we kind of snap out of it and realize who this guy is and what he is. He's not looking to be one of the one percentage of America. He's looking to be one of the point ten zeros one percent of the Russian oligarchy. You know, he wants to be one of those boys, you know. And if he has to turn this country over to him, so be it. If that's what he wants, he didn't give a shit about making America great again or anything else. And I think we need to understand that, you know, before we proceed on making arguments about one woman said to me that she goes well you know you liberals you know you you have such a problem with all this stuff and russian investigation he goes what about these priests and i I said you know i don't think anybody 
disagrees that that's an abomination. I could yeah. be against two things There's at once. There's not 25% of the population going, hey, these guys are, are men of God, leave them alone. We all kind of agree that, 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 yeah. that that's wrong. You know, how there can be any percentage of Americans who are watching this bullshit go down and go, oh, well, you know, he's... Uh, He's doing a good job. Uh, you know, it's is beyond any normal logic. I mean, this guy could grab a toddler, skin it alive, and eat it on camera, and they'd still make some argument for his, uh, you know, virtues. There you go. That was the legendary Michael McDonald of, of course, the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan and an amazing solo career and all the awesome duets he's done over the years. What an absolute honor it was to speak to him. And um, at the end of that conversation, I was really wishing that I had opened with the question about Trump, but an amazing conversation. Nonetheless, he's got a new Christmas album coming out in the next couple of weeks called Season of Peace. Thanks again so much to him. Thanks to Joe and Samantha Saxco for helping set that up as a conversation that I've been trying to set up for a very long time. The same company reps him as Emily Haynes of Stars, and I found that out and I've essentially been bugging their PR reps since then about getting him on the show. Really glad we were able to do it for episode 300. We've been doing the show for about five years and change, and I you know I can't thank everyone enough. All of those folks who have supported us over the years, folks at Boing Boing for helping us get off the ground, to Geneva and Brian for the production help that they've given us over the years. Every single person who's ever liked and rated and reviewed the show and told a friend. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this has been the most rewarding thing that I've done in my my career over the years, these 300 shows. So thanks again to you guys. And I have, uh, we've got a lot of shows coming up in the near future. There's a lot of RIYL already in the can. So look forward to that. Again, if you like this show, please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. Thanks. And uh, I guess we will see you again next week with episode 301 of RIYL.